Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in a copy of God's Word uh, to Psalm 76. Uh, if you're using one of our church's Bibles, uh, you'll find that on, starting on page 487. Uh, Psalms is easy to find right there in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 76, right there in the middle of Psalms. We have crested the hill and are over halfway th- or halfway through. Uh, what a joy it is to be in the Psalms together for a little while. Beloved saints, this is God's word given to us from heaven, from the lips of our Savior through his servants for our benefit and our instruction and our encouragement. Let's give our attention to the reading of it. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known, his name is great in Israel, his abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you. More majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is aroused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to Yahweh your God and perform them. Let all around bring him gifts to him who is to be feared who cuts off the spirits of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray that the Lord would meet us in it and speak to us through it. Our gracious God, you know our fickle hearts. You know that we fear the truth as much as we desire it, that we are as likely to run from it as to it, that we can suppress your glorious truth without a second thought. Our confidence as we draw near to your word is that you are greater than our fears, that you are not bound by our sin, that your word gives freedom to those in bondage. May we not just believe these things, but witness them as you open your word to us now. In Jesus' perfect name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We have a number of visitors from out of town, but I'm guessing even our visitors may have noticed one thing about Olympia. We are not short on bumper stickers. Uh, One I remember seeing 10 or 15 years ago quite frequently was, I'm already against the next war. Don't worry, I have no intention of getting political here. I just want to point something out uh, about that bumper sticker that has certain assumptions It's this, it believes that war is never appropriate, that that it's always wrong, and that there is never a good reason to go to war. 
that all motives that we might have to go to war must be sinister, must be sinister uh, misguided, and that peace must be maintained at all costs. And I think that's just dead wrong. But of course, what I think doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is what God thinks. He is the source of all knowledge, all truth, and our job as his creations is to think his thoughts after him. To bring ourselves, our hearts, and our minds into accord with his. And until we do so, we are simply fighting against truth. Or maybe we could just more plainly say it this way, we're fighting against reality. And there is no peace in fighting against reality. Psalm 76 reminds us that sometimes war is unavoidable. But more importantly, our our psalm this morning focuses and forces us to see that the most important question is not whether or not we will see war, but when we do, whether or not we will be on the right side. And to help us see this, Psalm 76 invokes the imagery uh, from, from God's conquest of the promised land after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And it compares the motives of wicked men for going to war and the motives of a loving God for going to war. And finally, it will help us to see how we are to respond to these realities by drawing near to the God of love. And so that's really what we want to see uh, this morning as we look at this psalm. Uh, This imagery of war, uh, the motives that can provoke war one way or the other, and then finally, how we are to respond to the God of love. Those are the three things that we're going to try to look at as as we meditate on this psalm for just a few minutes. Uh, Now, if this reference to Salem in verse 2 might strike you as odd, I I just want to be clear up front. It's not saying that God lives in in Oregon. Um, That's not the Salem it's talking about. Uh, The Salem here, uh, at least in in this form, only appears one other place in the Old Testament. And that's in Genesis 14, verse 18. Uh, It's the name for Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem. Back in Genesis, it was occupied by a group of people called the Jebusites. Uh, Abraham, uh, as he draws near, meets the king of Salem, a man named Melchizedek. But at the time Psalm 76 was written, it uh, hadn't been called Salem for a long time. This is an ancient name appearing only one other time in the Old Testament. It was by no means the common way to refer to Jerusalem, to the city. So why? Why does the poet here choose to call it Salem? Now, it's okay. We can be honest. Poets are weird. But they're thoughtful. Poets always seem to wrestle over just the right word to use at just the right time. Because words are the tools of the poet's craft. And for some reason, the poet here has chosen not to use the common name, but to use the ancient name for Jerusalem. 
Why? I think the reason was to intentionally take Israel back to a time when uh, uh, in Jerusalem, before Jerusalem was Jerusalem, when it was still Salem. Before it was the center of Jewish life. Uh, before the temple had been built. When it was still occupied by God's enemies. Now, by all rights, God is free to give land to whom he will. Psalm 24 tells us, the world and all it contains is the Lord's. He's free to distribute it as he sees fit. And he had given the land of Canaan, the promised land, to Abraham and to his descendants after him. Now what that means is that the Jebusites had no lawful right to that land. They were trespassers, foreign occupiers, squatters. And so when Israel was delivered out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt and brought home to the promised land, one of the first things they had to do was remove the people who were living in their land, in their house, the occupiers. And so in the opening verse of our psalm says that God is known in Israel and has revealed himself in Salem. It's saying more than simply that God has made himself known in Jerusalem through the presence of the temple and the tabernacle. He did that to be sure. And we saw that in Psalm 73 just a few weeks ago when we looked at that, that that God makes himself known through the architecture of the temple. But that's not what Psalm 76 is focusing on. It's focusing on... how it came to be there, the clearing of the land, the conquest of Canaan. And that becomes clear in verse 3. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. There God claimed victory in battle. God has not just made himself known through the finished product, the temple, and, and he has done that to be sure, but he also has made himself known through the entire process of bringing his sanctuary to Jerusalem and setting it up on that hill that would be called Zion. What our psalm opens up doing is reminding us of God's possessing that land, conquering that land, clearing that land. And the temptation is to think, so this is what it's like to have God on our side. We'll be invincible. But there's a key episode in God's story that we want to remember. Just as Israel was preparing to cross the Jordan and enter into the promised land and begin to clear house, there was a very intriguing event It's recorded in Joshua 5, and if you remember the beginning of Joshua 5, first God says, let all the males who have not yet been circumcised, who are not circumcised in the wilderness, let them be circumcised. And this was important because circumcision was an act of consecration, which is just a big fancy word for for setting apart, for God to put his mark, his claim on them. Circumcision showed that these people belonged to God, that they were his special possession. And then to drive this home, just a few verses later in Joshua 5, as as the leaders of Israel draw near to Jericho, they meet this warrior standing there with a drawn sword. 
And the way it's described, it's absolutely terrifying. At a moment's glance, the leaders of Israel realize this, this warrior is not to be messed with. He is invincible. And Joshua asks what we would ask. <laughs> Are you for us or for our adversaries? And that's the question, right? This, is this indestructible warrior on our side or on our enemy's side? Because that's the ball game right there. Are we safe or are we in serious trouble? Do we move forward or do we run as fast as we can? Joshua could never have anticipated the warrior's answer. Do you remember it? No. Wait, wait, wait. It was an either-or question. And the warrior says, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I am come. Joshua, I'm not on your side, and I'm not on their side. That is entirely the wrong question, Joshua. The question is, whose side are you on? You see, when we think God is on our side, we think that we have the prerogative to set the agenda, and he has to back our play. We think, it's all about bumper stickers this morning, we think that God is our co-pilot. But when God goes into battle, you want to make sure that you are on his side. And this is beautifully illustrated in verses 4 through 8 in our psalm. These words, uh, translated in verse 4, glorious and majestic, aren't typically the words uh, associated with glory and majesty in the Old Testament. Um, You might have heard that typically the word for uh, glory is, is... the word for heavy, it's weighty. This is a different word. Glory here is, is, is a brilliant light, almost blindingly brilliant. And, and a majestic here isn't just nobility, it's strength, it's power. The identity, uh, what God is saying is he's, he's blindingly brilliant, he's powerful. And then he goes on and he identifies his enemies like wild beasts that roam the hills looking for prey to devour. And God says that he is greater than these. In the ancient world, you would have been terrified to roam the hillsides at the wrong time of day because the wild animals would tear you apart. They were just seeking uh, to find something they could attack. And God says, I'm greater than all of those. In fact, when those wild beasts see me, they become paralyzed at my sight. They're like deer caught in the headlights, right? But deer are prey animals, and God says the predators become prey when I am around. Unable to even lift their hands in their own defense. They don't even put up a fight because they're terrified when I come to battle. Without raising any resistance, they are stripped of all their spoil, the land that they had mistakenly considered their own. And this is how God retook the land. This is how Salem was conquered. God was not afraid of war. He does not avoid it at all costs. But that doesn't mean that all war is justified, nor does it mean that all motives for going to war are noble. 
Verse 4 helps us to see the motives of wicked men for going to war. They're like those predators on the mountains stalking their prey. They roam like lions seeking whom they might devour, who might be weak and defenseless. The reason they go to war is bloodlust, an insatiable appetite for destruction. They, they find a perverted pleasure in destruction, in lording power over those weaker than themselves. They're driven by greed, by narcissism. For some, this is war. It's, it's an opportunity to abuse others and a chance to feed on the weak and the helpless. It's a greedy attempt to meet hunger, uh, to, to satisfy a hunger that can never be satisfied. For some, war is really just a monument to their own egos. But what about God? Why is God willing to engage in war? Is it to flex his muscles? Does he simply pick fights with those weaker to stroke his pride? No. For God, war is a last resort waged only to protect what is good and honorable. When he wages war, it is is to come to rescue the weak and the preyed upon. He comes to set things right, to rescue others, to serve, not to be served. But notice who he comes to rescue. They're not identified by a particular race or nationality. It's not a matter of belonging to the right family. Money can't buy his protection. Verse 9 says, he comes in judgment, he comes in war to save the humble. Not even the humble of Israel, the humble of the earth. What defines you more than your nationality, more than your politics, more than your bank accounts, more than your family background, what defines you more than all of these is your heart. Is it filled with arrogance or is it filled with humility? Does it ask God if he is on your side? Or does it ask what God requires of you? To be the object of God's rescue means surrendering your plans, your agenda... But the question we have to ask is why does Psalm 76, written so many years later, Asaph lived long after David, David lived long after uh, the conquest, why does this psalm, written so many years later, invoke the imagery of the war for the promised land? The land was secured. The enemies had been driven out. Under David and Solomon, the people of Israel had enjoyed a a peace and a prosperity unequaled before or since. What's the reason for bringing all this up years later? There's always a reason. Because God is a great poet. And what do we know about poets? They choose their words carefully. 
At every point in history, there has been a war raging. It's not a war between earthly kingdoms and armies. It's not a war fought with conventional weapons. It's not a war between flesh and blood. It is a war for the souls of men. And echoing Psalm 76, do you remember what Peter says? Your adversary, the devil, he prowls like a lion, seeking whom he might devour. See, the the devil is the original beast of prey, filled with a a bloodlust and in an unquenchable search for conquest. And when Jesus came into this world, what did he say? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword, to bring war. I've come to do battle. Because Satan, much like the Jebusites, was a bully occupying a a place to which he had no right. And so Jesus came to conquer him and to cast him out. That's why he came. And when he came, John, uh, the, the Apostle John in his gospel describes his coming in language that echoes Psalm 76 so remarkably. Like the glorious God in Psalm 76, he, John starts off by telling us that Jesus is the true light who, who pushes back the darkness. He, John tells us that, that he... Like when God came and set up his tabernacle in in Jerusalem, Jesus set up the the tabernacle of his body among us. And then how how Psalm 76 says, in all of this, God has made himself known. John says, in seeing Jesus, he has made the eternal God known. The coming of Jesus is patterned after the conquering of the promised land, poetically captured in Psalm 76. And yet, it's not without a twist. All great stories have a twist. Look again at verses 8 and 9. From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. When we read that, We expect the the heavens to pour out judgment on the wicked. But when Jesus came into this world, there was a day when the earth was brought to a standstill. When the heavens poured out wrath and all all who were there stood paralyzed in fear. It happened one Friday afternoon. And so dramatic was the event that the sun itself went dark. The twist in the story is who was enduring that judgment? It wasn't the Jebusites. It wasn't the Egyptians or the Philistines or the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Romans or any other of Israel's known earthly enemies. The one enduring the judgment was Jesus himself. God's rescue of his people would always come through war, but this time it was by turning that war on himself. You see, the devil's no fool. 
We sang about this in one of our hymns this morning, that he's the great accuser. He uses God's law against us. He looks at us and says, aha, they're sinners. Go home and read Zechariah 3, a beautiful example of this. The devil knows that he, he can use truth against us. He can, he can look at God and say, you demand righteousness, and that's not righteousness. The name Satan means accuser, prosecutor. He knows that God requires perfection and that anyone who sins forfeits his life. And this is how he tries to gain victory over us, by using God's righteousness against us. It's brilliant. The only way for God to rescue his people is by enduring the judgment that they deserve in their place. And so in in language echoing Psalm 76, Jesus arose and he left his throne in heaven to establish judgment to save the humble of the earth. Because that alone is the hope for salvation for you and for me. So what's the great question? Is it whose side is God on? Or is it whose side are you on? It's not about trying to get God to fight your fight, to enact your policy, to achieve your agenda. It's about recognizing that he is God and there is no other like him. There is hope in no other. All things are judged by by how they match up to him. He's reality. He's not on your side. He's not on their side. He's the standard. You are either for him or you are against him. And there is no greater terror than being God's enemy. Verses 4 through 8 of our psalm beautifully explain the futility of trying to fight against him. But just as there's no greater terror than being his enemy, there is likewise no greater comfort than surrendering to him because he has come to save the humble. When you surrender that agenda, when you stop saying, God, are you willing to do what I require of you? And you just say, you are God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. The greatest comfort history has ever known is yours. That the invincible warrior is your shield and your protector. This is why our psalm ends the way it does. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Verse 11. This is what it looks like to be humble. It means taking the posture of a servant rather than the one in charge. It means asking God what he requires of you rather than telling him what you require of him. Make your vows, swear allegiance to him, bow, bring gifts, surrender all that you have and all that you are to him because that is the only place of security and comfort. In other words, we need to be set apart to God's purposes, not the other way around. And that's why just before that warrior showed up, God beautifully illustrated that to Israel through circumcision 
Circumcision was the visible sign that they were being set apart as God's possession, that they belonged to him. And that meant all that they had belonged to the Lord. And that's why God commanded that their children receive the sign of circumcision as well, to show that even our children belong to the Lord because all we have, all we are, are his. Circumcision didn't save the children of Israel. It told them that they belonged to a holy family and were part of the people of God. And it told them that the one thing that really matters, the one question that they have to ask, is are they for God or against him? Because there's no in between. The circumcision made that day was a constant call for them to embrace their parents' faith and to bow their knees to the king of heaven. What a great gift God gave to the children of Israel as they prepared to enter the promised land. Kind of makes you jealous, right? I wish we had a circumcision. Well, maybe something like it at least. Colossians tells us we do. We have baptism. It continues to be every bit the blessing that circumcision was to Israel. It carries forward all that same significance. It is a sign of consecration, of setting apart. It's a call to humility, to faith, and to repentance. And it continues to be for us and for our children. Please join me in prayer. Our glorious and mighty God, when your anger is aroused, who can stand? May your anger never be aroused against us, for we know that your Son came into this world to silence it, by enduring it. May our response be the only appropriate response, humility, dependence, faith, and love. May we readily and gladly confess that all we have and all we are is yours. May we confess that our great comfort is not that you are on our side, but that we are on yours, that we belong to you, For there is no other comfort in this life or that which is to come. Amen.